Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would join me in Romans chapter 14, we are almost right in the middle of a series this summer uh, that is, uh, what does the Bible say about? So for those of you who haven't been here each week or may not have been here this summer yet, uh, we're just working through, uh, you know, what, what, we, what we believe and then really how what we believe informs our behavior. And so it took us several uh, weeks or months uh, to kind of just field questions from you as was asked what would you like to hear a message preached about concerning what does the Bible say about it? And so it's given us some opportunities to, to do some things that, that, uh, that most series uh, does not give us the opportunity to do. And that is to address, uh, address some, some issues that you would like to hear a little bit more in depth. Uh, and again, last week, I know that's true, uh, some of these questions are asked because... Uh, you really want to know and struggling through an answer. And some, uh, some questions are asked because you want the person sitting beside you to know the answer and you don't want to be the one to tell them. And so I understand all of that. I also know that that puts me on the hot seat every week. Uh, and, and that's okay. I, I really don't mind that. I know what, uh, uh, I know how to study and I know what I believe personally. Uh, but I'm trying my best not to put my personal opinions uh, in, but just simply to extract takeaways uh, from what does the Bible really say about any particular issue. Uh, and so I'm trying my best to, to do just that. But each week would not give itself enough time to be able to fully talk about any specific topic. So I appreciate your, your patience with that and, and certainly your grace in, in how I relay some of that information. I'm sure there's a thousand ways of doing it better than I do. And, uh, and so I'm just grateful for the opportunity. But today is, uh, and this was asked, this was asked multiple times. And so you asked, uh, and I don't know who asked, because we intentionally made that anonymous so that no one would ever feel like I'm specifically targeting anybody and that you wouldn't be afraid to ask any particular question. So I don't know who asked this, but it was asked a lot, uh, so much so that I took multiple questions and put them all into one, one answer in one sermon. So uh, I'll be answering several of those questions today. Uh, but what does the Bible say about alcohol, specifically in moderation? And, and I think that's a great question, and we ought, to, we ought to have an answer. I think Scripture is pretty clear on it. Uh, but I also want to say this. I don't think that it's possible to talk about alcohol in moderation. Because we're all going to draw different lines of where moderation is. Uh, and so it would be impossible to say, what does the Bible say about moderation? Because I, I can assure you, we don't agree on moderation. And so I think the fairer question would be, is what does the Bible say about alcohol altogether? And so that's really what I want to, to try to talk about. So I'll be a little bit more general than probably some of you are wanting to be. But I believe that is probably to our benefit because there's got to be some room in our faith for us to wrestle and struggle individually and not just be told what we're going to think or believe. 
Now, there are some areas in Scripture that's very, very clear, this is it. But there are some other passages of Scripture where God gives us opportunity to deal individually. And I think alcohol may be one of those. So there's over a hundred verses that speak to drinking alcohol and, and, and believe it or not, multiple forms of alcohol, not just one. It talks about beer as well. It talks about wine. It talks about drink and strong drink. And so we know that there's lots of different types of alcoholic beverage and uh, it's most cases uh, when the Bible speaks about alcohol, it's shaded darker in most of its uses. In almost every case, almost every case, there are warnings that come with the teaching on it. And although there are some situations which the Bible strictly forbids alcohol, it does not strictly forbid alcohol in every situation. So since the Bible does not strictly forbid alcohol, whether or not you should drink as an adult becomes a very personal decision. And everyone has got to make that decision for themselves. So the question is often asked, can I, can a Christian drink? Or should a Christian drink? Or does drinking send a person to hell? Now listen, very clearly I want to be heard uh, in, on this situation. Uh, it is the refusal, refusal and the rejection of Christ that sends a person to hell. Okay, Very clear. Scripture is very clear. There's one reason why we go to a devil's hell. And, and one of the questions that we're not asked is, how could a loving God send people to hell? Why would God create hell for people to go to? God did not create hell for people to go to. God created hell for Satan. Period. And so if you're not going to choose God... If you're not going to be loyal to Him, if you're going to reject His sacrifices in relationship with Him, you don't go to your hell, you go to Satan's hell. Uh, and so, let's be very clear. A mean God, an unfair God, wouldn't give us the boundaries. But a loving, merciful God would say, here's how you can escape it. But by nature, we are born with a carnal nature. We do not learn to reject Christ. We are born rejecting Christ. So those are very, very important distinctions to make. It is the refusal, refusal and the rejection of Christ that sends a person to hell. So, I would say to us, this issue of alcohol is not, is not a salvation issue. In fact, everything about life is not a salvation issue. All right? Uh, I've had to learn that because that's not what I was taught. <laughs> but uh, everything is not a salvation issue. But there are a few things that I can share with you concerning drinking alcohol. Number one, the Bible allows Christians to drink alcohol for medical, re for medical reasons. Uh, in fact, it was 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul tells Timothy to stop drinking only water and to use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, uh, we know that these things are true, and, and you know a lot of the things I'm going to say to, today are debatable, but I'm going to try to strip all of that away and just speak to Scripture. In the first century, uh, man, these folks really struggled with bacteria in their, in their drinking water. And, and often, uh, people would get dysentery and become, become t terrible, in fact. Uh, and so one of the ways, most common ways to treat dysentery was with 
alcohol, alcoholic beverages. And at least, I don't know if we'll get there today or not, but their practice primarily in the first century for those who were purely drinking uh, something other than bacteria-laden water was to mix uh, eight or nine parts of water with one part alcohol. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that. We're not, that's not what our conversation is going to be today. But that would at least kill some of the bacteria that would cause, cause dysentery. It was a very, very common uh, treatment for that. So, it's possible that with Timothy's dysentery or his stomach issues, that Paul was simply saying you should use alcohol for medicinal purposes. Uh, medicinal purposes, not we know for a fact, at least here, Paul is not talking about recreational purposes. Okay, uh, Please laugh at some of these things that might sound funny. Uh, so this would be this would be similar. I mean, you know, to to say that any use of alcohol is forbidden, uh, you know, I mean, they didn't go down to the pharmacy and and grab rob, uh, robitussin or or Nyquil or any of those things that we can do, and we give ourselves uh, uh, freedom to to treat those same things the same ways. We just call them differently. So. Uh, what Paul is pretty much saying is, in response to last week's message, is should a Christian seek medical help? I think what Paul is saying is, yes, Christian Timothy, you should not just trust the Lord to cure your dysentery. Go take some medicine, uh, like any good father would tell his, his son, even if it is in the faith. Number two, the Bible sometimes portrays alcohol as something good and enjoyable. Uh, you might be surprised to hear me say that, but Jesus' very first miracle involved turning water into wine for a wedding celebration. It's the very first thing that he did, uh, miraculously, uh, that's, on, that's on record. Of course, the question is, was that wine fermented or not? And, and so this has been debated for a long, long time, is that, you know, was Jesus uh, turning water into wine that was fermented wine, or was Jesus turning water into wine that was super fresh grapefruit or grape juices, and people laugh and snicker at that, but I have, I have an answer. And, uh, and so I'm going to put this to rest once and for all, at least in our context, okay? Was it fermented or not? Here's the answer. We can't possibly know the answer to that. <laughs> if you think, I mean, if you don't want it to be fermented, then you can prove that it's not. And if you need it to be fermented, you can prove that it is. Truth of the matter is, not one of us was there, not one of us can know. Because the word wine in Greek is the word oinos, okay? Oinos is not a specific word. Greek is a very specific language. This word is not a specific word. Sometimes it is used, and I'm talking about not just in Scripture, but even in general history, uh, this word is used to talk about unfermented and fermented drink. And so we can't possibly know from the root word. So we have to keep digging deeper and say, what about the character? Some people have go so far as to say Jesus was the bartender. I really, really doubt that Jesus is setting people up to fail. I mean, if people are getting drunk already and Jesus is, well, you know, Jesus gets to deter determine if you're overserved or not. I just don't think that fits with the character and nature of Christ. And you can disagree if you want. But I just don't find, I don't find that to be consistent with what everything else in Scripture has to say about the issue. So the question is, is that these people, and you can look at the context in John chapter 2, but these folks are coming to Jesus. The master of ceremonies actually comes to him. We've run out of, we've run out of wine. What are we going to do? Jesus says, oh, boom, and you know, there it all is. And, 
And, and so they come back and said, what in the world is going on? Usually, once people have drunk to their full, now I don't know if that means drunk or not, but once they've had enough to be numbed or dulled, that's when you throw the garbage on them. I mean, you're going to charge them the same amount of money, but they don't know if it's good or not. Uh, and so you take advantage of people that way. And if you think that they're not going to take advantage of you, you're crazy. I promise you they're taking advantage of you, right? You just are too numb to know it. So... You have uh, uh, Jesus, actually, the marriage ceremonies comes back and says, what in the world? This is, this is better than the stuff we gave at the first. So what does better mean? Some people want better to mean stronger, more potent. Other people want better to mean fresher, purer, more nearer the vine than nearer the decay. All right, so... Truth of the matter is, we don't know. I don't, I don't know what it was that Jesus made, so we have to dig into his, his character. I do know this, that Psalm 104 says, uh, that uh, this is in verse 14 and 15, He makes grass to grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man. So he says here, wine that gladdens the heart of man, that makes, the, makes a man's heart happy. That word in, in the, the, the heart of man is actually, in Hebrew, it simply means the place where emotional decisions are made. So when you've got to make, and you, know, you make rational decisions here, you make emotional decisions here. So we always have to be careful about decisions that are made here. And so when you've got to make a really, really tough decision that might bring anxiety or, or whatever, uh, of course we know that wine would help to salve the anxiety that would come as a result. Uh, so the, I guess the answer would be, yes, that is true, but is he saying that's the only way to live? What we do know that it kind of calms the heart of a man and, and makes his heart a little easier to deal with. He also makes oil to make his face shine. It's so funny, oil to make his face shine, and, and today we spend all kinds of money trying to make sure our face doesn't shine. Isn't that funny? And bread that sustains his, his heart. And so God makes all things for lots of different purposes. This doesn't necessarily endorse or sanction it. All it simply says is, is this is this is what will happen. Verse, I mean, the third thing is uh, the Bible does, and I'm not going to spend much time on this because I think this is something that we all could agree on pretty quickly. The Bible does absolutely forbids drunkenness. Uh, it does not. It ne- the Bible never says that alcohol itself is sinful, but what it will say is that it always can lead to sin. And so drunkenness, we know, is, is absolutely, as absolutely a sin, and I won't spend much more time on that than that. The Bible uh, forbids drinking in cases where it may offend fellow believers. And so I want to take you to Romans chapter 14. I think I already mentioned that uh, to you, but I want, to, I want to pick up there Romans 14, and then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which we will not read, but it says there that we should be considerate of other people especially Christians who may have different convictions than we have. So obviously, we are all on a different place. We're not all in the same place spiritually, and so we're going to have different convictions. And I don't know about you, but my convictions have changed as I learn more about the character and nature of God, right? Convictions can change. Once you set a conviction, you don't set it and forget it like Ronco tells you to do. You, you are always evolving in your convictions, hoping that your convictions will move you closer and closer to Christ-likeness. This is called sanctification. The longer we walk with Christ, the more we should be looking like Him. Uh, we don't reach a point where we just plateau or stagnate. Unfortunately, we do do that. We shouldn't do that. And so we are always growing and evolving. And so with that, 
uh, churches should always be wrestling with these moral kind of issues. Uh, so what I mean by that is it would be great if, well, let's see, how do I want to say this? So you think about the people that you worship with, when you start thinking, and some of you have been here a long, long time, I mean, not that long, but a long, long time, and, and you, know, you start thinking about the people that you go to church with, you have specific pockets of faces that you think about. But now our church is picking up new people all of the time. And so we are all not starting at the same place. And on this day, we don't all have the same convictions. And so part of the solution is we've got to give lots of people room to grow. I hear people all the time pointing fingers at the church and saying, well, the church ought to. And the church, the church is made up of individual people. There are some people who are brand new in the kingdom who don't know better. And we ought to be patient and we ought to be generous and we ought to be gracious with those folks. There are some Christians who've been in church for 50 years and they don't know better. Then <laughs> we ought to be patient and we ought to be generous and we ought to be gracious with these people. And so, you know, I think what we should compare ourselves is to what the Word of God says a church is, not what people say a church is. Uh, I think we can get into a lot of trouble there. Okay, so we need to make sure that the Bible, understand that the Bible does forbid drinking. It offends fellow believers. So we are called to be Christ. Christ. Jesus said, I have not come to, to be served, but I have come to serve. So what that tells us is that Jesus came to be incredibly selfless. And so with Christ, we were, before we knew him, we were uh, ob obliged uh, obligated to obey our flesh and to obey our, our emotion. And so we were born into sin, conceived into sin, live uh, in sin, and I am mastered by sin. I am a slave to sin. And so before I knew who Jesus was and before I gave my life to Him and before He gave me uh, a renewed spirit uh, within me uh, and, and transformed my dead spirit, I was a slave to the flesh and to the emotions which are carnal, by the way. And so uh, in, in that regard, I have now been given freedom in Christ. And so a lot of times people hear freedom in Christ, meaning that now I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want. And that's not what freedom in Christ means. Freedom in Christ means before I knew who Jesus was, I was a slave to sin. But now I can tell sin no if I want to. Now I can think again. Now I have the freedom to be alive in Christ and not obey the flesh. All right, so with that, I have the ability to be selfless, which is to choose Christ, or to be selfish and choose my own desires. So we have to ask ourselves, am I going to be mastered by my desires and my freedoms, or am I going to be mastered by the Spirit who gives us freedom? And so these are, these are really important questions. And so when a person comes to me and says, what, and whatever the case may be, I am free to do whatever I want to do, I would say that's true. And if you're going to ex exercise that freedom for selfishness, then drinking isn't your problem. Your rebellion and your selfishness is your problem. And so in that case, alcohol isn't the biggest issue. If a person says, nobody's going to tell me I can't drink, I'm a Christian, I'm mature enough, I can drink, I don't have a conviction about it. That's a significant heart issue, not a drinking issue, right? Because Scripture is really clear that when we are in Christ, we are selfless. And if these offend a brother, then we always choose to work within the conviction of a brother. I'm going to read that in just a second. So in those cases, the argumentative, insisting person reveals what alcohol hasn't revealed yet. Convictions are respected among those who love and those who are selfless. 
I ought to love my brothers and sisters more than I love my convictions and my freedoms. Okay, that's a very, very easy thing for us to, to remember. And by the way, if that's true, we, there's a lot of questions we never have to ask ourselves. So this is in Romans chapter 14, begin reading in verse 15. It says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat. I mean, if, if, you're, call, if you're causing a brother or a sister, I would say, if you're causing a brother or a sister to be offended because of what you eat. And, and in this context is meat offered to idols. And so there, the argument was that these Christians who are coming out of... Uh, um, well, paganism, but, you know, Roman, Roman religion. We could say mythology today. They, would, they wouldn't call it that. But they're, they're coming out of temple worship, and they're coming out of all of these Roman gods and all of this, all this uh, uh, demonism. And, and then they're, they're coming into the street where they go to the meat market, and they have different sections of meat. This meat was actually offered to all of these gods in the temple. But, you know, you figure out that, that the gods made of wood and stone, they don't eat very much. And so they take that meat back maybe a day later and they sell it at market at clearance cost. And so there are some really frugal Christians who say, sure, I'll, I'll buy the clearance meat. It ain't quite green yet. So they take it home and they eat it. And there are some Christians who would say, are you out of your mind? That was actually offered as a sacrifice to these pagan gods. You can't eat that and call yourself a Christian. And some people would say, it's just meat. And some people would say, it's not just meat. That's the issue, okay? So some people would say, you shouldn't eat. And other people saying, saving me money. All right, so if you are offending because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Now, by the way, you can insert any offense in this context, I believe. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let us therefore make every effort to not to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So these are, these are very, uh, very obvious answers. I think that verse says it very, very loud and clear. Don't drink alcohol if and when it's offensive to another brother or sister in Christ. But I think there's another, there's a, a fifth point that I want to make, and that is the Bible actually forbids drinking if it hinders the gospel. So in number four, if it offends a brother and sister, this doesn't have as much to do with a brother or sister as it does those who have not accepted the gospel yet, when drinking becomes an obstacle to the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that he was very, very careful, even though he was allowed to eat and to drink anything that he wanted, he was very careful not to do those things that would hinder the gospel of Christ. He said this, in the beginning of verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no man. In other words, nobody can tell me what to do. Now, I, if you are abiding in the law of Christ, you never have to worry about the law of the land. Paul is not saying that the law can't tell me what to do. What he is saying is, my standard is above man's standard. So I, I'm not, don't, nobody owns me. Nobody is telling me what to do. I'm choosing to live that way. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? He tells us, in order to win as many as possible. 
I became all things to all men so that by all means possible I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Can I drink? Yes. Do I drink? No. Because it might hinder my ability to present clearly the gospel. My testimony is the only thing I have that God has given me as a tool to bring people into the kingdom. It's the only thing I have. My opinions don't matter. The Word of God doesn't matter if my life doesn't match up to it. I don't have anything except my life. And listen, God could take a thousand different ways and manifest Himself to us. Signs, wonders, miracles. He could do it all. You look at Scripture, there's not one thing that God can't do to shake our attention. He can do it. He can screech eagles over the sky and say, Jesus is the one. He could do it. Why doesn't He? Because He's allowing our testimony to be the absolute best case evidence of what it looks like to be transformed by Jesus Christ. And if we're willing to forfeit the only tool in our hand for our licenses and our freedoms, and because we don't have convictions, I'm not even saying they're right or wrong. We shouldn't be asking the question, can I or should I or can a, can a, can a Christian drink and still go to heaven? Or does drinking send you to hell? What we, what we should be saying is, is anything I'm doing an obstacle to other believers? And is anything I'm doing preventing my ability to cast God in the best light for the gospel to the nations? Those are the questions that we should be asking. Not what can we get away with or how close to the line can I walk? Now, if we're so wrapped up in our licenses and we cannot set aside in order to reach others, then drinking is not a blessing. It's become our master. And I think that's really what we're going to talk about. Just, hey, I'm not, at least I'm not an alcoholic or I don't get drunk. That's true. But you don't have to be drunk in order to be mastered by something. So, number six, the Bible warns that drinking is very often dangerous and, and unwise. Now, there's a lot of warnings about how tempting and dangerous it is to get involved with alcohol. Uh, a wise mother told her son in Proverbs chapter 31, It's not for kings, O Lemuel. By the way, that's Samuel. I mean Solomon, rather, sorry. Not for kings to drink wine or rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. It's not wise. It's not for kings, O king. <laughs> Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, he actually said, Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, because in the end it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Now these Bible passages suggest that you should that you shouldn't, that you should be very, very careful. Although it doesn't say, if you do it, you will die. But I think we should be asking better questions than that. Alcohol may be the best example of something that can be avoided, even if it doesn't have to be. It may, there's lots of things where the Bible would say ex exercise self-control. So we look at sexual immorality and say, you know, what, what does the Bible say about sexual immorality? Well, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, the Bible says, boom, I mean, it's pretty clear. 
You know, what does the Bible say about adultery? Boom, it's really, really clear. Alcohol, no. Maybe he would say that alcohol is a good example of something that you can do, but you know what? I'm going to let you decide if that's better or best. I'm going to let you decide if that's better or best. Can I? Sure. But is it, does it give me the best opportunity to glare the excellencies of God? Does it give me the best opportunity to be fully prepared and ready at any moment that God might would use me for the furtherance of His gospel? So even though I can, I won't be mastered. And I'm not, this, is a, this is not just an alcohol message. This, you can insert whatever issue you want to insert right there, and that is still very much true. Alcohol can very easily seduce. And, I, and, I, and before you know it, that thing that seduces you controls you. So the question isn't can I or should I? The question is not is it in my best interest? The question is always is this for the glory of God or is this for the glory of myself? So I think that, you know, when you, you strip all that away, God is, is looking out for us. Uh, he's giving us some, some freedom to exercise the principles of Scripture, especially when it can, can uh, consider alcohol. But I think He's looking out for us and for His glory when He warns us about the dangers of alcohol and certainly drunkenness. That's, that one's much easier. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, uh, He says, Every tree of the garden you shall freely eat, uh, but he doesn't give them carte blanche and tell them they can do whatever they want to do. <clears throat> there are restrictions. And so just because God created the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he also said, and don't look at it, don't, don't look at it, don't touch it, don't eat from it. And getting into this restriction, this one restriction cost them everything that they had known. But I want you, what I want you to understand is, could Adam and Eve eat from the tree? Could they? Of course. They certainly did. There are also consequences that come with that action. So even though they were free to eat, there probably was a better way. And I am not equating alcohol with original sin, okay? I'm just saying that we have to be very, very careful that our excuses and our justifications are consistent everywhere in Scripture. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So make you free. So what causes us to be free? Well, according to John 8, truth, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the... So we know that Jesus Christ is what makes us free. We have freedom in Christ and freedom of Christ in our, in our lives. So now that we have the choice, we can say no to those things that compel us, those things that drive us, that may keep us from being our best. So with truth comes options. Now, we can be obedient or we can be disobedient. So when God says clearly, don't do this, then we have to scratch our head and say, but what does He really think? You never have to ask yourself, but, you know... Is it right or wrong for me to have an affair? We don't have to ask that question. Is it right or wrong for me to murder somebody? We don't have to scratch our head and say, what does the Bible say about that? We, we clearly know that. Obedience and disobedience, that is, 
I shouldn't say easy. I should say that's easier now that we are in Christ. Now, when you start getting to the what is good for me and what is better for me, that is a much different conversation because what is good, we say, what is good? What can I get away with? What can I do? What does God permit me to do and still have a relationship with Him? Versus what is a better option for me? So we talk about God's permissive will, which is God allowing us to choose some things that He would not choose for us and still be in a relationship with Him. That gets to be a little bit trickier because, again, we're not all coming from the same place at the same time. We're constantly evolving in our convictions and in our holiness. But that's really, you know, I think what's probably where most arguments come from in churches is better or, or uh, good or better. But, but there are some even more trickier than that, and that is better versus best. And that is, that is those decisions can only be made by prayer, by real serious Bible study. I hear people all the time say, well, the Bible never, never says such and such. It doesn't, and here's why the Bible never says it, is because you're reading the English version. version. Uh, but if you get down to the core languages, the original languages, you'll find the Bible says a whole lot of things that we can't read about it in English. You say, well, that ain't fair. Well, it may not be fair, so we should be better students of the Word of God instead of reading it in English. We should learn Greek and Hebrew, right? Right? Or at least know who we can trust to break down the Word for us and not just believe those things that are convenient to the narrative we want to be true. I mean, I see that all the time. I see books being written that all of a sudden, we're enlightened people. All of a sudden, the church has been wrong for 2,000 years. And it's written by people who wouldn't know a Greek symbol if they saw it. But we know better because we've studied the English. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. Uh, didn't mean to get distracted there. What was I talking about? I'm just kidding. So we, we learn by, by Bible study. We learn by prayer. We learn by our spirit bearing witness to His Spirit, those things that are true. And we're able to walk away with a clear conscience saying, I know that this is my best opportunity and most effective opportunity to give God the greatest glory from my life. And that's where we all should be working toward. And that's where our convictions get built. So if I start over here and I'm warming up to Christ and I start, I start making different decisions and I become more Christ-like, well, by the time I get here, I don't say, oh, boy, I'm more like Christ than I was yesterday. No, we just keep doing that, right? We keep either cutting things out or allowing the right things in so that we can keep moving toward Christ until the very last breath that we take. Okay, Romans chapter 14. I want to go back there. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Now, Paul has no problem calling out what is strong and what is weak. So we know where Paul lines up on it because of the, uh, the words that he chooses. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things... But he who is weak, and I'm speaking only to vegetarians and vegans, okay? He who is weak eats only vegetables. <laughs> so you're weak before you eat and you're weak after you eat. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Listen, laugh a little bit. Lighten up. Give me a little help this morning. Let me breathe. He who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, I've already told you the context of this. I just thought that was going to be funnier than it was. Apparently, I've offended people and didn't mean to. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. I love this because what Paul is saying is that we're not in the same place. Is it right to eat meat offered to idols? Yes. 
Is it wrong to eat meat offered to idols? Yes. So whatever you do, you better make sure you do out of faith. Let me tell you what the wrong thing is. It's to draw a line on who eats and who doesn't eat. That's what's wrong. And both of you are guilty for that. The work of the gospel is to bring us to common ground. If we're going to caught up on little things of who's stronger and who's weaker, we're never going to be beneficial for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might be right, but we're dead wrong. We have to be very careful about those things that we argue about. So Paul says, for God has received him. Now listen, in the game of the gospel that we all play in, if every one of us wear a jersey, we have our name across the back, the back of your jersey does not say receiver. Okay, The receiver is Jesus Christ. That's what it says right here in verse 3. For God has received him. Can you eat? I don't know. God's receiving him. Can you not eat? I don't know. God's receiving him. God's the receiver. Who in the world sets you up to be the judge of who God receives and who God doesn't receive? Now listen to what he says. Verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? I know some of you have heard me say that before, but who in the world, if I'm the owner of a business, I'm not going to go to another business owner and tell him how he ought to be running his employees. What in the world business of that is that of mine? And by the way, we all belong to King Jesus. Our job is not to judge his servants. Our job is to make sure that we're operating from a pure heart. By the way, that's what verse 23 is going to say in Romans 14. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So whatever, wherever you line up on this issue, it better be from a place of faith, a place of pure conviction. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time and, and kind of shift gears. Believe it or not, uh, I'm just now starting the sermon. So all that was introduction. So I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, there, I, I used to, uh, I used to enjoy this uh, this topic because uh, it elicited uh, opportunities to dialogue and to learn and to hear. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I hear people all the time use really, really, really bad arguments. So if we're going to argue, we need to at least have good arguments. Uh, and, and real ones. There's a lot of miscommunication. And I hear people say, you know, well, Jesus drank. You know, Jesus drank all the time. He was friend of sinners. Well, it doesn't mean Jesus sinned. Uh, and just because Jesus did some things doesn't mean that he participated in those things. Uh, and, and, you know, if Jesus is, is, is speaking to publicans and sinners, it doesn't mean that he was defrauding people of their tax money just because he was trying to minister to people. So don't, you know, guilty by association, maybe. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. Uh, guilty by association, but Jesus is trying to bring the gospel into these people's lives, not become like them. So anyway, you know, Jesus drank. Jesus drank all the time. Jesus turned water into wine. Well, I, yeah, he did turn, definitely turn water into wine. I just don't know what kind of wine it was, right? So, so let's talk about that. When did Jesus drink? Did you know that there's not one place in Scripture where the Bible says that Jesus drank alcohol? Not one. You say, well, wait a minute. Surely there's one. There's not one. Not one place in Scripture where Jesus drank alcohol. 
Let me explain. So the only time that anybody could get away with saying that Jesus did is in the Last Supper when Jesus took the wine and drank it and then gave it to all his disciples to also drink it. But did you know that in every context of every passage of Scripture where it talks about the Last Supper, that it's incredibly specific of what was going on here? Let me just read it to you very quickly, okay? In Luke chapter 22, it says, He took the cup. You say, now, Pastor, don't be semantic. Cups, what's in the cup? We know what's in the cup, right? But it, it, this is just what it says. He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, so we know something was in it. And I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them. This is the body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood which is shed for you. Mark chapter 14. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, and they drank uh, of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it in the kingdom of God. Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it. For this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul retelling about the Last Supper. For I have received of the Lord that which I have also delivered to you, that the Lord the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, it's broken for you, do this remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took the cup which he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. Now, here's why that is so incredibly important. All right? Is that in every telling, it was cup, which is the Greek word pino, and it is fruit of the vine, which is a very, very specific way of saying this, ganema ampelos which is never fermented, all right? Never fermented. This is literally fruit of the vine. It is the juice that comes directly out of the grape, not the fermented part. That word, if it is used to imply fermentation, is the word oinos. And when G whatever it was that Jesus gave at the Last Supper was not oinos, it was gehema ampelos. So maybe the term, maybe, maybe it's just some sort of weird coincidence that every time from four different writers that the Holy Spirit inspired them to use the same phrase, but it was an accident. Maybe, maybe. But I'm telling you, Jesus had no problem using the word oinos. For instance, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bride, bride, bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. No man puts a piece of new cloth on an old garment, for that which is put in to fill up taketh the garment, and the rent is made worse, the tear is, is worse. Neither do men put new wine in old bottles. You know, the gases develop in, in this wine. And so if you take an old wine skin, which they would, it's already stretched to its capacity. So you've put in new wine in an old wine skin, these gases are going to build up and it's going to explode the old wine skin. This is what Jesus is talking about. He had no problem using the word oinos. 
What about the cross? And they offered Jesus a drink. This is in Mark chapter 15, verse 22. And they bring him, Jesus Christ, to the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of skull, and they gave him to drink oinos, mingled with myrrh. These are topical antibiotics that if ingested would be capable of numbing some of the torture. So these guys who had tortured him and beat him within an inch of his life were merciful enough when they saw him hanging there taking his last breaths to say, surely we can numb some of the side effects of our torture. And so they dipped this in fermented wine, no doubt, because grape juice, nobody says, oh, I just cut my hand off, I need to get some Welch's. Now, I need to numb this pain. So a sponge dipped in wine and myrrh, which is also what they used to embalm bodies then. And they reached it up to Jesus. But what did Jesus even do with that? Nope. Jesus wouldn't even take the wine from a sponge because he wanted to be 100% alert when he was dying. He wanted to feel every ounce of sin and didn't want to be numbed to even an ounce of the reality of what was happening around him. So at what point can we drink and not experience that? I don't know. Jesus made a clear choice. A very clear choice. Does that mean Jesus never drank? I don't know. It's not recorded in the Scripture that he drank fermented drinks. Pastor, that's a pretty bold statement. It is. You didn't ask for my opinion. This is what the Bible says about Jesus drinking alcohol. He didn't. He didn't. The only time that drinking specifically fermented drink is ever sanctioned in the Bible is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Use a little wine for your stomach's sake because you're sick, Timothy. I guess the biggest problem with this is in Hebrews chapter 4, we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast the confession. Uh, so we know in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus has become our high priest. So I, wanna, I want us to look at just a couple of things before, before I close. Uh, number one, Jesus is our high priest. And so with that comes some pretty serious preconditions. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Leviticus chapter 10. Oh, here we go. Old Testament. So for those who would say, well, I'm only interested in the red letters. Did you know that there are no such things as red letters? Somebody sat down on a computer and highlighted everything Jesus said and chose red. Uh, Jesus didn't speak in red letters. Jesus spoke for the glory of God the Father and only spoke what the Father told him to speak, right? That's true of every Old Testament and New Testament writer. In, in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter it says that all Scripture is inspired by God. That means God breathed. The Holy Spirit breathed every word. And, and if we're not careful, we can get caught up on the, well, I prefer the red letters because we know those are Jesus' words. They're all Jesus' words. The black letters have just as much power as the red letters. So, Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. Now, God was very, very careful to tell Moses how all of this was going to work. 
He told him how to make the utensils. He told him how to make the censers. He told him how to, what kind of the, the, the recipe was for the incense. He told them how to make the, uh, the bowls of incense. He told them how to, to offer the, where, the, where the fire came from and where it went, how to do the coals. He told them every element, every element was very clearly prescribed to them. But Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they off, off, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. What that means is they did what God told them to do in a way that God did not tell them to do it. They had a better idea. They had a better idea. Now whether they did that intentionally or whether they were in a position where they just didn't know any better. But they knew what God had said at their core. And in fact, we know that verse 1 ends by saying, contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Verse 3, Moses said to Aaron. Now, these are Moses' nephews. Aaron is Moses' brother. And Aaron just lost his two sons. God just killed them. And Moses says to his grieving brother, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. What Moses said, if this were written, really written, translated in English, was, I told you so. I told you. This is what God said. He said, there's a way to do it, and there's a heart to do it with. And your, and your boys didn't listen. That's what happens. So, holy and honored. My people will be holy and I will be honored. Now, Aaron, like any good father, remained silent. Don't know what to do with this information. But you get down to verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you. Now, it doesn't say get drunk. Don't drink you or your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your, your generations. Now look at verse 10. And so, or here's the reason. God's not just making arbitrary lines in the sand. And so, as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between unclean and the clean. And so all of a sudden we realize what Nadab and Abihu had done. They had been drinking. I don't know if they were drunk. But reality had been numbed enough that they were not capable of understanding clean from unclean. God doesn't say, tell my priest not to get drunk. He says, don't drink at all so that you may be able to tell what is holy, what is honorable, what is profane, and what is holy. Verse 11, and so to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. They were not able to determine what is rational and the difference between better and best. It was obscured. How much did they drink? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But I know what the consequences were. From now on, my priests, not a drop. And I know some of you are like, I'm oh, a poor pastor, you know. I ain't your priest. A lot of people equate that. They say, well, the Old Testament, you got priests. The New Testament, you got pastors. Nope. Wrong about that. Pastor is not the same office as be. I ain't making sacrifices for you before the Lord. We have a high priest, Hebrews 4 tells us. The high priest is Jesus Christ. 
who, unlike an earthly priest, knows everything that we deal with and everything that we go through. There's not an area in your life where you struggle that Jesus doesn't understand. Not one. But listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, talking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal, anybody? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And I love this because what happens here in the New Testament is that we go from having a priest and a high priest to having a high priest and we become the priests. So what do God expect of priests? Well, you better be able to tell the difference between holy and profane. You better be able to tell the difference between what honors me and what dishonors me. So you better make sure that all your faculties are all together all the time. Say, wait a minute, there's a lot of people who drink and get drunk and God don't strike them dead anymore, so obviously God's changed His mind. But no, God doesn't change. He might change how He addresses it in this world, but He hasn't changed what He thinks about it. And I would say there's a lot of folks who give themselves permission and excuses to do things that God has already clearly stated because we're not nearly as afraid of the consequences. But that doesn't mean that God has changed His mind on the matter. There's a lot of times where we might could be available to somebody's worst moment, but we're impaired because we knew better. And we chose better instead of best. We missed out on being a blessing to somebody. We missed out on being able to be used for the gospel because we were dealing with consequences of our own actions or we were dealing with impairments or we were dealing with whatever, whatever to degree. Listen, I said this last week, we were talking about marijuana. I need every ounce of my faculties to be able to worship God with all my mind. I don't need there ever to be anything that numbs my mind. Do I have the freedom to drink? Yep. Is it lawful for me? Yep. It's not beneficial. Because there's times somebody might call me from the hospital and say, Pastor, we need you. Sorry, I'll need to sober up. Listen, there are times that people might would call you to be used if we were living selflessly instead of our own lives. And listen, I know I'm drawing a hard line in the sand on that. But we ought to be learning that we can trust one another. We ought to be learning that, that we're there for one another and being available to one another. Being a pastor doesn't... I mean, I'm a member of this church too. I am a brother to my brothers and a brother to my sisters. I'm not on any other... I mean, there's no hierarchy here. Just working within different giftings. And we need Everybody. Why would we allow anything to have mastery over us? Say, what well, doesn't master me? Well, then why don't we say no? Well, you can say that about coffee. Okay, well, let's say that about coffee. Or why don't we complain about McDonald's? You know, well, I shouldn't have pointed them out. Any fast food place. I just say them because they always get a bum rap, right? They're bigger than that. Well, you know, we, we don't have a problem with, with that. Well, maybe we should have a problem with how we treat the temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we should start thinking about those things instead of picking on the things that we've never wrestled with. Maybe we ought to start thinking a little bit deeper and asking ourselves, am I truly living for my own glory or am I living for the glory of my licenses? Or am I living for the glory of the kingdom of God?
Ephesians chapter 1, I mean, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says that, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, which debauchery leads to all sorts of other things. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why alcohol is called spirits? It's kind of, a, it's kind of an insult to the Holy Spirit, but it comes from this verse. It's either the Spirit or the spirits. Why would you want to have to live within the Spirit when you could live within the spirits? There's nothing that the spirits offer us that the Spirit doesn't offer us. The Spirit just requires us to make different decisions. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It's a lifestyle of holiness and honor. The Spirit's cheap imitation. It's a knockoff. So what does the Bible say about alcohol? Well, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to what question are you asking? I really do. I think it comes down to can you? Yes. Should you? I don't know. Is it the best for the kingdom of God? Well, that'd be a hard sell for me. I think it might limit us from God's glory, not propel us into it. But we're all in different places, and we're all growing to Christ-likeness. And so while we wait to figure it out, we'd better be loving one another and serving one another and reaching out with one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And uh, I wish it was clear. I wish there was a clear-cut answer to this. It has divided your body for a long, long time. Lord, I thank you for the principles whereby we may be able to make decisions. Just pray that we'd ask the right questions. So, Lord, give us grace and give us mercy in proportion to our obedience. Help us to be asking the question, not can I or should I. Help us ask the question, is everything I'm doing for the glory of God, whether we eat or whether we drink, is it to the glory of God? Help us to continue to grow into Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. you stand with me? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you know, I'm, I'm using alcohol because that was the question, but I really want there to be some other takeaways uh, in, in regard to, to that. You can insert any issue at, at, with this same message. But at the end of the day, the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, am I moving the kingdom of God forward with my life and my decisions? Am I using my influence and my ability and my testimony to further the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so this morning, that's simply what I want you to ask the Lord. Is if there's blind spots, there's no doubt we all have them. But if there's things in my life that are keeping me from being able to be used to encourage the brotherhood and sisterhood, or if there's things in my life that are keeping me from speaking the gospel, of hope and help and salvation to those who are far from it. The Lord, reveal that to me so that I can come to you more closer to you. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.